we have been climbing this mountain, whether you know it or not. Some of you have climbed physical mountains today through brush and other things, right? Um, which is good, which is really good. That, that's healthy stuff. Being able to put the phones down, being able to encounter one another as human beings in the flesh, right? And um, all of these different talks and activities and confession and mass and everything has been leading up to this moment right now. And it's actually very biblical. This is a very biblical moment. I know you all think the Old Testament is really old, but this is a biblical moment that we are entering right now that transcends time and space. It's a lot like when Moses went to get the Ten Commandments from God. I want to read you the scripture from Exodus. It's quite interesting. It really parallels where we are. On the morning of the third day, there were peals of thunder and lightning, and a heavy cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. But Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stationed themselves at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, for the Lord came down upon it in fire. The smoke rose from it as though from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The trumpet blast grew louder and louder while Moses was speaking, and God answering him with thunder. When the Lord came down to the top of Mount Sinai, he summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up to him. So you see, this weekend, we've been climbing slowly. We've reached the pinnacle tonight. We've reached the summit, the very highest point of our retreat. Tomorrow, folks, it's a really steep descent home. You will be amazed how fast you are home from this moment we have here tonight. And what we have is an opportunity to encounter Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit in Eucharistic adoration. This is God's unbridled power right here in this room tonight. But before we experience that, as a group preparing for the Sacrament of Confirmation, before we have that upper room experience of the mighty wind coming, I want to tell you a little bit about how I have experienced God's power in my life. And my story, my personal witness story, begins before I can even have any memory of it. I was three weeks of age when my mom took me to a routine doctor appointment in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. The doctor, Dr. Bartlett, put the stethoscope up to my heart and she said, Kathy, there's something really wrong with your son's heart. You need to go have a cardiologist check this out. My mom was a nurse at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the number one children's cardiac unit in the country to this day. 
my mom uh, immediately scheduled an appointment for my heart. Dr. Clark, who um, was the cardiologist, ran some tests very quickly, and they found out that I would need open heart surgery immediately. I had a rare condition called Tetralogy of Fallot. The medical condition doesn't mean a whole lot to you and it really doesn't mean a whole lot to me. What it meant was that I needed to have immediate open heart surgery and I would need to have two of those heart surgeries in the first year of my life. So my parents did something incredibly important. They did something incredibly important during those first weeks. When I was getting ready to have my very first surgery, hours before scalpel number one touched my skin, they baptized me yeah. in the Holy Spirit. I had a emergency baptism. That was epic. <laughs> epic. Alright, but here's the thing, alright? Why do I do that? Uh, number one, because it's really fun for me. Uh, number two, it wakes you up from, uh, from your food coma that we just had from dinner. And number three, um, it really does give you an experience of what an emergency baptism probably felt like for me. Alright? Now, I seriously was baptized in the hospital. Hours before being wheeled to the operating room. Okay? So, I can't tell you, because it's not true, that my baptism is any more important than yours. But what I can tell you is that Jesus came into my life in a sacramental way very early on in my life. Most people are baptized when they are, you know, like six months, a year old. I was baptized in three weeks. So the sacramental graces that entered my life uh, very, very early on, I was three weeks old. I was claimed for God then. But let me tell you, just because you're claimed for God, just because your parents believe in God and say, I want my child baptized, doesn't mean that life goes perfectly afterward. I had the open heart surgery, the first two, a matter of fact, and they can't tell you when or where, but I had a stroke that half paralyzed the left half of my body. I've lived with it my entire life. I drive a car with a knob. I can't write with my left hand. I can only write with my right one. If you notice it, I probably carry, you'll notice it more now that I tell you, but I carry my hand up a little bit. I have needed uh, to go through a vast amount of <coughs> training and uh, work to overcome my disability throughout the course of my life. It's something that I have never known anything different about. They don't know when it happened, but in the first two years of my life, you don't remember that. Uh, nor is your motor function like a normal adult anyway when you're a kid. So as I had those uh, experiences, I grew up through a lot of different things. As I said I drive a car with a knob, um, but, but I had a lot of physical and uh, even some, some intellectual issues growing up. And the one story I think highlights this the best 
is when I was in fifth grade or fourth grade. I can't really remember, but it was around that time. And I was playing a game where we were in class with all my classmates at St. Patrick's grade school in Malvern, Pennsylvania. And we had to play a game where we were diagramming sentences. And I had to run to the board, write my answer on the board, and run back to my seat. Pretty easy. So I jet up to the board, write my answer. On the way back to my uh, seat, I step on my shoelace, it becomes untied. My teacher notices and says, Billy, tie your shoe. There is a little problem. I don't know how to tie my shoe. The, the motor function in this hand just doesn't work the same way as my right one. I have no idea how to tie my shoe. Now, I'm in fourth or fifth grade, and it's starting to get to the point where I'm going to like these socials after, you know, uh, you know, dances or socials or whatever, and starting to get my, like, you know, my social life in order, right? And so I, I can't raise my hand in class and go, uh, Mrs. Kawazo, can you please tie my shoe for me? It would just end in ridicule. Billy doesn't know how to tie his shoe. Ha, ha, ha. Endless teasing from my friends. Who doesn't know how to tie their shoe at age 10 or 11? Right? So I also can't not tie it. I mean, what am I going to do? Walk around all day with a shoe untied? That seems kind of stupid, a little bit uh, you know, dangerous, just tripping on it. And my teacher's just going to be a nag anyway and say, Billy, tie your shoe, Billy, tie your shoe, Billy, tie your shoe the whole day. So now I have to tie it. I have no idea how to tie it, and I'm not going to ask my teacher for help. <laughs> what am I going to do? I look down at my shoelace, and I try to remember what my mom taught my little brother. My mom taught my little brother how to tie his shoes. I'm thinking, loop over, under, through, loop over, under, through, over, what, through, what? I have no idea. But I just started taking the strings of my shoelace and knotting them together like crazy. There was this massive juggernaut on the top of my shoe that I was like, this is the ugliest thing. I'm going to pull my pant leg down over it, and uh, I am, I'm just going to like hide it the rest of the day. My shoe is secure. I got home. My mom looked at my shoe. She went, oh, wow. Took a pair of scissors, cut the laces off, and we went over, bought new laces, and on the way she said, Billy, you really need to learn how to tie your shoes. I said, Mom, yeah, I do, but guess what? This hand doesn't work like this. I don't know how to do this. Yeah, you know, so she, she was like, I recognize that you need some help. And you have an occupational therapist by the name of Don Temme. Occupational therapists, I like to say very shortly, to help you take broken parts and make things whole. Okay? So he was able to take my broken hand and work different wonders physically, uh, occupationally, so I could get through school carrying lunch trays, juggling bags uh, up the stairs to my apartment even today. Uh, I, I credit him for being able to use my body differently than the way um, somebody with two completely functional hands works it. And so Don Temme comes over and he brings his Mary Poppins bag of tricks, right? And, and he uh, says, okay, today we're gonna teach you how to tie your shoe. I'm like, great. The first thing he pulls out of his Mary Poppins bag is this little piece of plastic. And all you have to do to magically tie your shoe is slide this piece of plastic over and your shoes are tied for life. I'm like, all right, doesn't really look all that cool. I don't think I'm really gonna be able to get many dances or any slow dances at my next 
uh, social with this piece of plastic space junk on my shoe. I think it's, this, this option's got to go. There's got to be something else in the bag. <clears throat> so he goes, absolutely, there is, totally. I've got uh, another option. It's called learning how to tie your shoe one-handed. I'm like, yes. And all those, all those dates now, I'll be able to hop on one foot like Harry Houdini, tie my shoe with one hand. I'll be the, the most popular kid in school. So he pulls this thing out and... And uh, he, uh, he shows me how to do it. It's an instruction sheet. And I follow and I fail a few times like you would learning how to tie your shoe. But ultimately what ends up happening is the bunny doesn't look the same because he only has one ear. If you only tie it with one hand, you're only going to get one ear. I'm not going to school with a Van Gogh bunny on my ear or, or on top of my shoe. It's not happening, right? Can't do it. Not going to do it. Uh, I need to have two ears on my bunny. And at that point, Don goes, well... There's nothing else in the bag, nothing else coming out to learn how to tie your shoes. Uh, you're only going to be able to tie your shoes if you do it two-handed. <laughs> and I said, all right, well, show me how to do it two-handed. Let me tell you, it took me, uh, you know, another hour. The lesson was over. I still hadn't successfully tied my shoes, but he had given me just enough, just enough to keep trying to do it. I remember that day very vividly. I was over top of my shoe for at least two hours. I did not do any, I was like, Mom, I'm not doing homework until I figure this out. And not doing anything until I get this shoe tied. And all of a sudden, like, you know, two and a half hours later, bang, my shoe has a two-eared bunny. Was it the most pretty shoe? Uh, uh, no, it was not. It did not look like a fantastic two-eared bunny. It looked more like a demented one. But I was able and Tuesday I had a two-eared bunny. So I continued trying it on my other shoe. It took me another uh, while to do it. But I finally got it down. And it went to the point of light speed that I was able to do it. But I remember that first day very clearly because my dad came home from work. And he said to me, or I said to him, rather, that, Dad, I can tie my shoes. Today I learned how to tie my shoes. Today I overcame that struggle. And he goes, let me put my bag down I want to see. So I, I sit on this little fireplace slate at my house in Malvern, Pennsylvania, and I'm tying my shoes. It probably took 45 minutes, but my dad sat there patiently watching me intently tie my shoes. And you know what he said at the very end? Billy, I am so proud of you. I am so proud of you that you learned how to do it. And you know, when you're in fifth grade or, you know, fourth grade or whatever, you don't really see the action of the Holy Spirit the way you do as an adult. You see it even more in your lives right now than you did when you were five or six years old, or even ten years old. You see it differently. Your life experience has lended that to you. Let me tell you where I see the Holy Spirit in the story I just told you. I see the Holy Spirit in the command from God through my teacher, Billy, tie your shoe. You can't go through life with untied shoes. It just doesn't work. So God, God says, Billy, you cannot be the 40-year-old shoe-tying virgin. You need to learn how to tie them. <laughs> All right? Okay, God, fine. Then what does he do? He gives you the, uh, the ability. He gives you the creativity. The creativity first, right? To be able to do what? Get out of the sticky situation. He created this knot that I will never be able to repeat ever again on top of my shoe so that I could get home that day. He gives you this, this creativity. 
being his inspiration. Okay, I got it. And then he gives you somebody to instruct you further and help you along your way. Right? If I didn't have Don, if my mom wasn't able to lean on somebody like Don Temme to be able to help me, I don't know where I would be today. <laughs> so, kudos to him. Right? God, you need teachers, you need instructors, you need to keep learning is what God says through that. And then lastly, he gives you persistence to be able to do it, right? You disregard everything else. You disregard everything else. And you persist on the one goal, which ultimately is heaven, but you persist on the one goal of tying your shoe. And then what does he say? Like my dad... I am so proud of you. That's what God said. I am so proud of you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come on into the house. That's what he says. That's what happened through that experience. But I can understand, you know, how, how you can see it. See, I see it as like the Red Sea parting. I see it as a miracle in my life. But I understand as you guys sitting here, you might not understand it. You might not see it like that. Right? Because you see these stories on Sports Center, right? Da 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 da. This dude runs a marathon with with a cut off leg, right? You see it. It happens all the time, all right. This is what I like to call good old fashioned secular tryhard. In those packages on ESPN, you don't see a darn thing about God. It's just this guy did a really great thing. He 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 overcame his physical disability. Wonderful. Proud for him. He did it on his own ability. Different thing. I'm saying God helped me. All right. So, it's a big difference. So, what, how do I prove that to you? I can't. I can't prove it to you that God intervened and helped me. But I will offer you a couple other stories to kind of maybe show you out there that God's power does exist. The other story I want to tell you, well, I want to tell you, Kind of two. <clears throat> well, I was in high school. In fact, it was a junior. I was getting ready to go to prom. It was my, it was my junior prom. And I had a uh, date at the time that I was going to be taking to this prom. And she told me or that she was really excited to go with me. I was really excited to go with her. And um, this was like a few, I'd asked her like a few days before my routine heart checkup. I go once a year to the cardiologist to make sure this thing can continue to beat. Um, and I get to the doctor's office and I remember being a junior sitting there and the doctor telling me, Bill, you need to have open heart surgery. What? Here's what you need to know about open heart surgery, folks. They cut you wide open. Uh, there to there. They stop your heart from working. Completely stop it. Put you on cardiac bypass, which is a machine that keeps you alive while they work on your dead heart. Then they reconnect it and restart the heart with electric. 
electric uh, poles, like paddles. Okay? This is what the doctor said to me I needed to happen over the summer of my junior year. So picture like you guys getting off this summer and going to go have like the best summer of your life. Right? You're going to go to prom. You're going to want to go hang out with those people that you're going with. And he was telling me that I was going to be unable to do any of that. Physically unable to do any of that. Lying in a hospital bed for a week. And they had to go to cardiac therapy and unable to do anything with my chest wide open, oozing for eight weeks until everything cleared up and, and the bones rehealed. My entire summer was going to come crashing down. I was not happy. I was screaming. I was crying on the ride home from the doctor's office. My mom could not calm me down. My dad could not calm me down. I was angry at God. I was really, really ticked that I was going to lose my junior summer, which is probably like the best summer of your whole, whole high school experience because you don't have to worry about going off to school, but you've got really solid friendships and really fun stuff, right? Plan you can drive and all that kind of stuff. I was getting a little bit, just a little bit ahead of myself though because I had to have a test called a cardiac cath back in 1999. Uh, no, it was more like 2003. Um, they, they had to, they had different technology then, so they actually had to go in with a needle and measure the pressure in my heart to make sure it was measuring what the echocardiogram said on the outside, right? Inside measurements are better than outside measurements. So they said, at, at, right after prom, we want you to go through a cardiac cath so we can get all the final numbers and we can do the surgery. My mom was like, you're still under the, uh, you're, you're going to sign for yourself now. Here we go. We're going to go do it. I, I go sign. I have this procedure. And this procedure um, went pretty horribly. Uh, I have been a magnet for bad medical procedures in my life. And um, I ended up having to be drugged twice because I tried to wake up on the operating table. And so I was completely snowed. I was, uh, you know, not feeling good at all. And, um, but before we went, before we went to this procedure, I remember that morning so clearly. I was sitting in my dad's chair sitting in my father's chair in the den and I was emotionally frozen. Like I had no idea what to do or even think. First of all, it was like six o'clock in the morning, so I was tired. But I had no idea what to expect. I had no idea what to do. And my dad comes running down the stairs and with car keys in hand ready to go. And he just sees me like staring off into space. And he asked me, Billy, what's the matter? He didn't have to ask. He knew exactly what was wrong. I was scared out of my pants. And he goes, Billy, what's wrong? I said, Dad, I'm just so scared. I, I, you know, and I was, the, the tears just started flowing down my face. He goes, I'll be right back. He ran back up, and he comes back down. And for that nanosecond, you think he's won, you've won, like we're not going today. But he's, just as soon as I had that thought, he's back down the stairs with a handkerchief in his hand. And by now... I'm really sobbing, so he hands me this handkerchief, and I go to blow my nose and wipe my tears off and get ready to go to the hospital. He says, stop. 
put that handkerchief on your chest. And I said, why? He goes, this handkerchief was touched to the relic of the glove of St. Padre Pio. He's a saint that uh, I have a very strong devotion to. I place this handkerchief on your chest before you had your first open heart surgery. Place it on your chest now. So I did. And that's the first time in my life I really ever prayed. Really, like, ever seriously prayed to God for a gigantic need. God, I don't want to lose my summer. I really don't want to lose all this. But I know I have to go through this procedure. I know that I'm 90% sure that I'm going to have to have this open heart surgery. Okay? Just give me the strength to stand up out of this chair. That was my prayer. I got the strength to stand up out of the chair, handed the handkerchief back to my dad, and we went to the hospital. As I said, the procedure was horrible. Drugged twice. I think I tried to pee on some nurse. Um, and, uh, and, but, but when I woke up, the first words out of my mouth to my parents who were leaning over the gurney in the ICU were, do I need surgery? My mom looked down at me. She said, Billy, no, you don't. And I said, all right, I'm going back to bed. <laughs> and I went back to bed and I rested my head on the pillow and I knew God had everything in control was there some crazy miracle no there was a completely radical explanation for why I didn't need heart surgery the technology isn't where it was today back then the numbers were just plain old off on the instruments I didn't need it then but I heard those words in 2012 from my cardiologist here in Milwaukee as I was getting ready to enter into the seminary. All the paperwork filled out, ready to go in. Only thing is we need a clean bill of health. Go to your cardiologist, get it checked out. Can't sign that bill. You need to have your third open heart surgery. This time, we're not lying. You really need it. This time, the numbers are right where they say they are. We've got the technology you need it. So, on June 13th of 2000, June 10th of 2013, I had my third open heart surgery. It's like my first one because I didn't get a chance to experience it as a baby until 2013. I don't remember my first two surgeries. But the third one I remember very clearly. And I was working at St. Francis de Sales at the time. Um, and my, my boss, now Bishop Sherman, um, I asked, you know, the parish to pray for me, obviously. I said, i got to go through this. And it was uh, 10 months of worry and anxiety and preparing for this thing. And the morning of the surgery, my, uh, this is important, but my, it is important later in the story. My, my parish held a Eucharistic adoration uh, for me for me and my intentions of surgery while I was in surgery. They brought out Jesus, they put him on the altar, and people came in church and prayed for me while I was in surgery. And so, you kind of give you a picture of what that looks like when you ready yourself for surgery. It looks a lot like this. You um, are packing up your stuff at the house, 
from your parents' house, getting ready to drive to Mayo Clinic to have the surgery. I put in my earbuds, you guys want to know why you woke up to cartoon music this morning, here's the reason why. Uh, I, put in, I put in my earbuds, Santa Claus is coming to town, put one foot in front of the other. You guys know that song? Put one foot in front of the other, right? I put that song on repeat on my iPod in my ears at the age of 27, okay? And I did that because I needed to put one foot in front of the other. I had no idea how I was going to take my next step. What I was packing, who I had to say goodbye to. I didn't know if that was the last time I was going to hug my little sister. Guys, I could, be, I could have been dead. Right? They were going to stop my heart. A billion things could have gone wrong. They didn't, but they could have. So, you're nervous. You've got all this energy. You don't know where to put it. It's almost like, it's like, it's like you want to feel how they're going to cut open your chest before they do it. And I, all I can tell you is, the best way I can relate that, it's like putting the Packers game on pause right as Clay Matthews is going to sack the Bears quarterback, okay? It's like right before, right there, right before he hits them and waiting for 10 months and then clicking play. That's what that's like. That's the anxiety. It's, like, it's the tension. It's the buildup. So you get to the morning of the surgery, you've showered with pink soap twice, which is really great for your masculinity, by the way, <laughs> all right, uh, because it's got this special stuff to take the, the, the bacteria off your body. And again, it's like 5.30 in the morning. And what then happens is you walk into the hospital, you've asked for a Catholic chaplain, the chaplain or priest to come pray with you. They send the Protestant one, so now I'm like, all right, I'm going to convert this guy right here, you know, kind of thing. No, all right, now having surgery, please pray with me. He did a great job praying with me, trusted the doctor's hands to Jesus, and we had the surgery. I do this, they, they do this thing in the hospital, if you've ever been under general anesthesia, you kind of know they ask you to count backward from 10. How meaningless is that? Can you really spend the last words on your earth? I've actually thought about this for a significant enough period of time in my life. What? are going to be the last words that I am going to utter on this planet. Going to be the number seven brought to me by Sesame Street? I don't think so. Like, it just can't work that way. It can't. So, they wheel me into the operating room. I lay down on the table, and the, and the nurse says, we're going to insert the drug that's going to make you fall asleep. The next thing you're going to remember, if you wake up, is... Oh. No, no, she didn't say that. <laughs> the next thing you're going to remember is, is waking up uh, in the ICU after the surgery. I said, okay, here we go. So what did I do? I didn't count. She goes, can you count back from 10? I said, no. I just started saying the Hail Mary. I went, Hail Mary, full of I was out. The next thing I remember is waking up in the ICU, throwing up down a breathing tube. They were suctioning out my mouth. Uh, again, horrible medical procedures. I was in unbelievable pain. But right before that moment, right before that moment, the Holy Spirit awoke my soul before my body. That's the only way I can explain it. He awoke my soul before my body for about a split second. And it was very clear, very evident that everything had been taken care of and done correctly. And I knew that. And I was even able to handle the recovery and everything else. I took a group to Steubenville six weeks after my open heart surgery. I worked my tail off to get back to work. But the idea is, 
That in that moment, the Holy Spirit said, I did it. I got it. I accomplished it. I've got everything in this world in my hands. Your little measly heart is going to be fine. And about two weeks later, just so you know, I get this uh, piece of paper that has the timestamps of all the surgical things. So like at 11.55, they inserted this drug. And it looked at that, that, right? The long list with a huge bill next to it, by the way. But, uh, but he, that's what it said. Now, you ask me if this is, you, you tell me if this is a coincidence. There was a pin-sized hole, five millimeter holes, in the upper atrium of my heart that had never been detected, ever, through the many procedures and echocardiograms I've had, no one ever knew that there was this five millimeter pin hole in the topper part of my heart. Upper part, Tupperware, yeah, it's Tupperware. Uh, Tupperware, but no, in the upper part of my heart. Um, the time that Bishop Sherman lifted the monstrance to give the blessing for the adoration that everyone was praying for is the time they found that five millimeter hole in the upper part of my heart. The people that were there praying for me is time stamped. I can see it on a piece of paper. That the heart of Jesus, the Eucharistic heart of Jesus, is what we believe that is, by the way. That that's the heart of Jesus as Catholics. That's what we believe goes in that monstrance. And to show was lifted and they found it. I can't tell you that they would have found that otherwise. They found it, and the doc goes, we repaired it. Lord knows what it would have been, you know, 30 years or more unrepaired, right? I had lived 27 years without, without it being repaired. How much longer would I have lived? I don't know, but God knew it needed to be corrected. He knew it needed to be fixed. The Eucharist, the heart of Jesus Christ, his flesh that we consume, illuminated that doctor's mind, I have no doubt. But what does that mean for you? Because it means a lot to me, but it, it, it's got to mean a lot to you for me to be able to tell that story. It means that what we're doing, I believe, is real. And at every single Mass, when a priest puts his hands over ordinary bread and says, this is my body, it actually becomes his body. It's why I'm Catholic. There is no other reason in the world why I am Catholic other than the Eucharist. Because I know that I receive Jesus Christ in my body. He wants to come into my broken, patched up heart. Every time, it's broken. It needs to be fixed. It'll have to be fixed again in another 25 years. They have to do more work on it. But what I know is that he's got my back. And if that isn't real, then everything that I've gone through and done is completely a fraud. It's fake. I can't believe that. I can't. There's just no way. And so, again, I can't convince you of that. There's nothing that 
Bill Snyder can do to convince you that that is a miracle. I offer you some evidence, and I hope it's a good story, but I, but, but I can't convince you of that. What I can do, and what I hope to do, is show you that that is the heart of Christ. How? We sit in front of it and we pray. Guys, Jesus is here. He's been here all weekend in, in the other room behind the whiteboard. <laughs> all right, and that's where his heart's been staying with a little candle lit. And tonight we're going to put him in this monstrance. I can pick it up right now because there's no Jesus in there. All right? We're going to put it, we're going to put this in this monstrance, okay? Monstrance or ostensorium, which is the fancier Latin word for it, I guess, means to show. So we're showing Jesus. But what are we showing? We are showing his power. We are showing his glory. We are showing his love. Poured out right here for you and me. That's what we're showing. The king of the universe, the guy that created every hair on your head, every cell in your body, is going to be sitting no more than a few feet from you. And because we have Deacon Joe here, Deacon Joe has ordained hands. He's able to pick this up with Jesus in it. I'm not, you're not. He is through, val through his valid ordination. And he's going to be able to walk around and stand up close to you right here in front of you with Jesus a few inches from your face. Why am I telling you this? Because if you have any doubts, now is the time to talk to him. If you don't believe it, challenge him. If you don't believe him, tell him to prove it. He will, he might not prove it tonight, but he will come in power at some point in your life and prove it to you that the Eucharist is real, that it's his heart and he loves you and he wants you for all eternity to be with him that's it that's all i got